Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He ko nai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. G'day, welcome to Country Life. I'm Duncan Smith. Kia ora, great to have your company. Ko Sally Round, Dene. Today, tension and crisis talks in Australia's largest wine growing region as Aussie growers are crushed by low prices. What could be in store for New Zealand? There are plenty of young sharers stepping up to compete at this year's Golden Shares competition underway in Masterton. We take you behind the scenes. And later, Cosmo's taking us to an environmental restoration project in the Marlborough Sounds. But first to our monthly look at farming conditions around the Motu. And Northland had some welcome rain this week, about 30 millimetres, but follow-up is needed to break the dry spell. Dairy farmers are in a good headspace, apparently. That's with the forecast payout going up. Dairy cow pregnancy testing is well underway and results are normal, with 10-15% to 15% empty. The labour shortage, which has been an issue for several years, is even more dire this year. In Pukekohe, extensive areas of leafy green crops have been planted for winter, but prolific numbers of diamond black moths and armyworm are getting a meal first. Growers are saying demand for their crops is very weak and the prices they're receiving very disappointing. On Waikato Dairy Farms, grass is growing, cows are milking and supplementary feed isn't needed, even though some are feeding out. The price of maize silage has plummeted, there's no demand from cow farmers and grain operators aren't interested because they still have full silos from last year. In the hot, dry conditions, the maize is ripening really quickly though, so farmers will have to cut it whether they want to or not. They just can't hold out for the market to pick up. Bay of Plenty kiwifruit growers are positive. Picking started for the new red variety this week, but some orchardists are finding quite a few small fruit in their crops, which is an issue. Gold growers are gearing up for harvest and are quietly hopeful with good volume on the vines. There is plenty of grass on King Country farms. It's not great quality at this time of year, but stock are doing OK. And at last, lambs are starting to put on some weight. But as there is everywhere, there is dismay at the low prices being paid for store lambs. Early lambing farmers are putting the ram out, and those with weaner cattle to sell are preparing for sale yard fairs over the next couple of weeks. Taranaki has had what is being called a kind summer. Farms generally are looking green, but there are localised dry patches with brown pasture. One dairy farmer said covers are adequate but not exciting. Some are feeding out and those into autumn calving have just started and it's going well. Maize harvesting's well underway. Manawatu is also having a normal summer, which means it's getting dry. 25 millimetres of rain is needed and lots of cow herds are getting fed supplements to keep milking. There's plenty of feed in the hill country, so there's no pressure to sell lambs at present. Barley growers are relatively happy with the yields they've been harvesting.
Fodder beet and kale looks good, so farmers are feeling comfortable going into winter. It's similar in Titairafiti. Farm conditions are pretty good. February's been dry, but that comes after a wet green January. Stock are holding condition, although lambs are not putting on the weight one would hope, and generally our contact says farmers are also a bit down. They have no choice but to keep going forward, but with forestry slash still lying around, poor product prices and high input costs, they don't feel like smiling. Rams are going out here too, with more farmers getting into no-wool or self-shedding breeds because they're fed up with shearing costs and wool being worth nothing. In Hawke's Bay, the kiwifruit vines that survived the flooding have good-looking gold crops on them. Some vines have died, but generally the recovery's been better than expected. Apple orchards that growers thought wouldn't recover have, and crops are looking OK. They're flat-out picking Royal Gala and Posy varieties. Wairarapa is really dry. There's been no decent rain since December and it's getting frustrating. As in Gisborne, farmers aren't exactly smiling. Dealing with the dry, low lamb prices and ongoing cyclone recovery is taxing. The grape harvest is starting, which is a little earlier than normal. Horo Whenua is very, very dry. Our farmer contact says it's the driest summer in many years. The region is normally summer safe. Dairy farmers are feeding a lot of supplements to cows and many are once a day milking. Maize is being cut early because if it doesn't come off now, it will die. And if it stays this dry, there may be some willing buyers popping up soon. Cull cows are starting to fill up local meatworks, which have been quiet. Kisawai Purnamu and to the Whakatū Tasman region, the apple harvest has just started. Drought conditions are starting to bite, with smaller fruit than normal coming off trees. Around Motueka and Moteri, there's been little rain since December when the region could normally expect Christmas rains and follow up during January. If moisture doesn't arrive in the next couple of weeks, it'll be dire. And it's the same in Marlborough, really, really dry, with farmers offloading stock due to concerns over feed and water levels. One Marlborough farmer says he's only recorded 120 millimetres of rain in the past eight months. Farmers are already feeding out winter feed supplies and dairy farmers are reducing milking. PGG Wrightson brought forward its first annual wiener fair of the season to this week, which is three weeks ahead of schedule to let drought hit farmers offload stock now. On the west coast, pasture covers are good. Summer hasn't been too wet and it hasn't been too dry. Dairy farmers have made plenty of supplements. It's probably one of the best seasons in a long time. And thanks to the better-looking payout, they're certainly happier now than at the start of the season. A bit of rain in Canterbury this week has dampened the dust for a couple of days. All eyes are on the rain forecast for this weekend and early next week to get pastures and winter feed crops growing again. Harvest for most is well through, with only late crops such as red clover and radish still to go. Overall it has gone well with a good period of hot dry weather. Yields across the board are at or slightly above average. The concern going forward is limited grass seed contracts for next year's harvest. Many arable farmers are currently scratching their heads about what they can grow this coming year. Central Otago looks like a tinderbox and farmers want the wind funnelling through from the west coast to stop. Animals are in good condition, but some farmers are now feeding out. Those horticultural and dairy farmers needing water from local irrigation schemes are finding it in short supply. They're only allowed to take 25% of what they have consent for normally. 
And finally, Southland is having a perler inside the farm gate and a shocker outside it, what with low prices and high input costs. Grass growth is terrific, although the north of the district's getting a bit dry now. Stock are in top order and there isn't enough to keep on top of the growth. Fodder beet, kale and swedes for winter are looking fantastic. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. As New Zealand vintners prepare for their grape harvest, spare a thought for growers over the ditch. Crisis talks have been held in the Riverland region of South Australia, which supplies almost 70% of the country's crush. The growers, who mostly supply bulk wine producers, have also staged protests about the rock-bottom prices they've been getting for their fruit, and reports say many are throwing in the towel, leaving grapes on the ground, moving into pumpkins, or spraying their vines to stop them germinating. Our guest this week is Chris Archer, who works in both the Australian and New Zealand wine industries as a winemaker and consultant, and is co-owner of niche New Zealand-based wine company, Joy. Chris, how serious is the situation for wine growers at the moment in Australia? I think it's a pretty tough time for them, actually. Uh, It's an industry that has known a lot of booms and busts, but this one's been a big one and it's been coming uh, since 2020. Effectively, when China, uh, they they were Australia's largest exporter of about 20% of their volumes, and uh, that got turned off in 2020 due to high tariffs that was politically motivated and... um, you know, the industry's been absorbing that, but effectively there's 163 million litres of wine made every year that has got no home to go to. Is it all down, though, to Australia's battle over tariffs with China? Um, it's it, Well, there's, there's other trends as well. You've got um, pretty much the traditional wine markets around the world are all facing decline in, in wine sales. You know, you're looking at Australia around 12%. Um, New Zealand's similar, uh, and it's more, the, you know, these markets are still drinking the same or more alcohol, it's just that they're moving, the younger generations are moving to spirits and RTDs. And cost of living, is that having an effect? Uh, I believe so. I mean, uh, the, the spirits, you know, are, are, are quite cheap to manufacture, but I, I think it's also a change of trends, like these demographics have been actively marketed to by companies, and they've, the numbers are their success, really. The damage that's happening at the moment in Australia is, is in that production-driven wine, which is, you know, that sub-$15 a bottle wine, which is kind of like the daily drinking of, of, of the market. And that is where it's all starting to shift away. And that's the high volume of the industries. And so, you know, these, these poor grape growers in Renmark, I mean, they've been supplying wines for the last 30, 35, 40 years um, and it's all been good because the, the industry's been expanding, but, uh, but now there's an industry in decline and um, the first ones to go, unfortunately, are the grape growers because the wineries, you know, they have their own grapes that they make as well. You know, typically in Australia, you're looking at about 33% of, of the wineries own their own vineyards and so they use the grape growers as a supplement to, to, to move their volumes up and down depending on the, the sales to market. And are we talking just about the, the bulk suppliers here? There is trends that they're saying that the premium side is plateauing as well. And again, I guess, you know, the people who are drinking these high premium wines are getting older. And, you know, the, the younger generations are coming through uh, are probably looking at more premiumization of spirits and not wine. And so, I mean, our industry thinks that they'll come back, and I hope they do. 
Um, but it, there's certainly going to be a re-jig of the structure of the, the, the traditional wine business model. So what's the likelihood of New Zealand growers suffering the same fate as their Aussie counterparts? Uh, you, know, we've, you know, we've got a dominance in Sauvignon Blanc. It's 70% of our planted land area and it's 80% of our volume. So we're, we're a one-horse pony effectively um, and that makes us vulnerable. Um, and we had a bit of a glitch, you know, in 21 when we had, uh, you know, Marlborough had a 20% decrease in crop. What happened then is that we couldn't supply the markets that we'd fought for for the last 20, 30 years. And so those markets, instead of having an empty shelf, will just look to South Africa or to Chile or to North America to fill that spot. And once they've got that spot, it's really hard to get that back. And that's what, we're, that's what the industry's doing now is to, you know, re-hit those shelves. But the problem is, is that, you know, there's good quality wine around the world, you know, and, um, you know, we, it's a battle. You yourself have moved from producing bottled wine to canned wine, obviously a, a niche market here, but you saw a consumer trend. Yeah, I, I saw, you know, that we started this 10 years ago and we, we saw that the wine industry weren't catering to smaller volumes, to people who um, wanted portion control. And so that's been very much our focus, and especially in these times when there's, you know, people are being more health conscious, drinking less. The, the smaller portions are definitely um, a, a really good option for them. And further, the whole um, aluminium recycling, the, the technology there and the can is, is way superior in environmental footprint, uh, recycling, um, and it looks after the wine just as well as glass. So it's, it's, it's a great move for us. Winemaker Chris Archer. There are hopes Australian wine will be able to start flowing into China again at the end of March, after a meeting between the country's trade ministers this week. The Golden Shears is underway in Masterton, and since Thursday morning, the War Memorial Stadium has been buzzing to the sound of shears, wool handlers' brooms and the cranking of wool presses. Not to miss out, I went along for a slice of the action. OK, Father, we're going to pick this one into here. Timekeepers ready. Competitors get set. Go. It's the opening morning of what's billed as the world's premier shearing and wool handling competition. The Golden Shears has been going since 1961. Doug Lang of Shearing Sports New Zealand tells me just how big this event is. Basically, every any shearer in the world has a get half the chance to be here. Um, they will. And a lot of the top shearers in the world would see just getting to the top 30 in the Open Championship here as, as their goal. I've spoken to a world champion who told me exactly that. One of his highlights of his career was getting into the top 30 at the Golden Shears. It's been a bit of an upset this year as well. Roland Smith, the defending champion, has out due to injury. Yes, I spoke briefly with Roland last night. So he only made the decision yesterday, so in, in brief. Um, yeah, a bit of a diagnosis on an injury he's got and he's decided it's too much to risk uh, aggravating injuries. At the end of the day, I mean, he, he operates an co uh, agricultural contracting business and a bit of farming and shearing as well. Um, so he's got, and the family, of course, up there in Hawke's Bay, uh, and he wants to, at the end of the day, make sure he's in good nick next season when they'll be qualifying for the New Zealand team for the 2026 World Championships, which will be held here at the Golden Shears. There's been a big increase in the number of competitors this year. Oh, exactly. It's absolutely amazing. We started seeing it uh, increase at local shows maybe a month or so ago. It really started increasing. So we saw 200 competitors, that's shearing, shearers and wall handlers at places like Tai Happy, um, Danny Burke, uh, Martin, 
not exactly your biggest cities in the world, in some cases more, more shares in all hands in town than the actual population. Um, uh, and it's just continued on to here. See, the, the actual end result here is a bit over 25% up on last year. Uh, I've been doing this job now for Sharing Sports New Zealand for about 16 years, and I'm pretty sure we haven't seen these numbers here. It's about 500 individual competitors across the board. It was much bigger in heyday when the sheep numbers were much higher, so that's the only thing that's really affected the numbers over the years is how many sheep are actually being shorn. Uh, they currently say the sheep population is about um, 25, 26 million, but that's uh, the breeding ewes population mainly. Uh, roughly 50 million sheep are shorn each year, so that's obviously ewes and stuff are shorn twice in a lot of parts of the country, plus the lambs and that sort of thing. Yes, there's plenty of work, and as a result, we're seeing this amazing increase in competitors. This group that's come from uh, Mongolia, second year, I think, of, of a, an experimental um, sort of training process for them. Uh, there's about 40 Australians here that would be the most we've ever seen from Australia probably since the year dot when I mean, the Golden Shares had the sort of subtitle of Australasian Championships back in those days, 1961. Yeah, so it's just just amazing. Also, the UK com competitors, these are all people who are working here for the summer one way or another. Okay, we've got the green line down here with the Already the stands are chocker with supporters, whole families and shearing gangs, here to cheer on the competitors dressed in bright orange singlets. John Hodder's on the wool pressing stage. He calls himself the Minister of Wool Pressing. He knows all about the skill, one of the most demanding in the wool shed. How long have you been doing this, John? Oh, I've been doing this for 40 plus years. Well, I've been in the industry 60 odd years now. Oh, I'm just overseeing, making sure that Judges are happy, wool's recycled, wool presses are up to scratch, you know, no loose nuts and bolts. And what's the competition involved? What are people looking for? They are judged on the, the setup, the, the filling of the press, the tramping, the overall health and safety, all the cranking down, the pinning, clipping of, of the bale, all to be tidy, the branding, which we do on a sheet of paper. And of course you've got the bale weight. We have a bale weight now for this men's singles, which is 160k. As we saw, one boy got 159. It was just a kilo off 160. So that was that was good, good judgment and a time. It's no good being here all day. We do, unfortunately, we do have in our, in our industry what I sometimes call back of the classroom. We don't pay enough attention to detail. So we're here today to demonstrate attention to detail. Tidy branding, good clipping, good overall wool pressing. One of the toughest jobs in the wool shed, would you say? It is, it is. You know, we, we share, the shearer shares a lot of sheep, but if he's in a six-stand gang and, and they're doing 1,400, 1,500 sheep full wool, yes, it's, um, it's a demanding job. It's a very demanding job. And what does a competitor need? Is it just muscle? Well, I have to say, if, if, you, if you're six foot six and you've got good leverage, that helps to crank the press down. There's something about physical hardship that gets you and I excited. It's a bit cruel to say that, but there's something about physical hardship. Poor man or woman pressing a handle down. Oh, sweat coming off that.
name's Tom Abala and I just entered in the single men's wall pressing competition for the Golden Chairs. You look like you put your all into that. I definitely have. I've been training hard, not particularly for this, but just generally working, working hard and decided to enter my name in this for the first time and got really unfortunate with what happened with the press. What happened? So the, I was, as I finished cranking it down, the, the top lid popped up and I had to re-crank it down, which made it a lot harder. The wall popping out on each side. And Lost a bit of time as well. A lot of time and unfortunately couldn't um, clip it up and finish the bail. What, what does it take to be a good wall presser? Fitness, strength, because it's hard work, it's not just wall pressing, you have to do the back stuff and pin up for the sheep and for the shearer, so yeah. An important work. job in the wall very, very important. And very important. is this a full-time job for you? Um, for now, yes. I'm really enjoying it with my crew and it's good fun. Get along with everyone and so we'll see what happens long term. Good luck. Awesome, thank you. The novice and junior wool handlers are up on stage now. Cameras trained on them from all sides. The event's being live streamed around the world from a mini studio above the action. Welcome to the green room and with me I have the chief referee, Ronnie King. Welcome Ronnie. Welcome everybody. Call Mavis Mullins our home. My name is Mavis and with my colleague Digger Balm, we're hosting the live streaming for Golden Shares 2024. In the past, the, uh, the live streaming has gone to, and I think it's something like about 20 odd countries throughout the world. We have um, quite a big uh, online audience that increases as we get closer to the finals. So, you know, it's a pretty cool thing that now we actually cater to two audiences here at Masterton. And we've actually had a consistent online presence from Mongolia. Obviously, Aussie, there's a lot of whānau over there and apparently they all get together, have a garage party or, you know, they hook in and, and uh, join us. The UK, we have a lot of um, online viewers from there too. So, and these are actually people we all know. So it's kind of cool. We're talking to friends and family from throughout the world, all hooked up through sharing and wool handling. Fleeces from the wool handling heats are rushed out the back to some large sorting tables. Judges in white coats cast a fine eye over them. Joe Hopkirk's the chief referee for wool handling. The wool handler's job is to put like wools with like wools. And out the back, we go through all the wools that come out, and anything that shouldn't be in a basket is going to be marked against them. So that's what comes out here, are the faults that the wool handlers have put the wrong wool in the wrong place. With the fleece, it's the same sort of thing. We go through the fleece, and the wool handlers should know, in a wool shed, they've got to build up the, the quality for the farmer by putting good wools together and taking, for better words, the bad wools out. So the, the fleece, if there's anything in the fleece that shouldn't be in there when it comes out, again it comes out here and gets marked. The scores then go upstairs and they get added to the, the timing and the board points and then everything added together gives the mark that the board handlers are going to get. Just beyond the fleece judging room are the sheepyards. 
Trucks arrive unloading heavily fleeced animals who wait their turn to head on stage. There'll be 4,000 shorn over the three-day competition. On the other side of the pen, the finished product, newly shorn, waiting for a lift out. Alan Grant's in charge. I'm the sheep officer for Golden Shears. Most of the sheep come from local Wairapa farms within, in general, about a half an hour from Masterton here. We do get some merinos up from the South Island and we do get some corridors down from Taihapi. These ones are long walls behind me. They are um, 12 months full. Uh, we have, most of our sheep that we shear are tutus, Romney tutus, and they have only got six months full on them. I think I've looked at about 15,000 sheep to pick out the 4,000 sheep we need to come into the shears here. You know your sheep because you're also a shearer. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yeah, I am. And you're competing as well. Yes, I am. I am. I'm going to have a go in the open. I've uh, shorn at the shears here since ever I came to New Zealand. 21 years ago. Trish Stevens is president of the Golden Shears and she's buzzing at the big number of competitors this year. What does this competition mean for Masterton? For Masterton it's huge, absolutely huge. No parks, no accommodation. We bring in a lot of visitors. Um, Some people have never ever seen shearing before. So this is their opportunity. And Thursday nights, tonight, we have our free night. So anyone that wants to come along, have a look at the senior speed chair, the open speed chair. We have a teddy bear share in between where children up to 10 years of age can enter. We're only taking the first 12, so... They um, share their own teddy bears, do they? They've got a teddy bear that they share, yes. So um, we have some very, very keen little ladies. That must be quite hilarious to watch, is it? It is, it is. It's actually very cute. We've got two two-year-olds so far entered. Um, yes, so it is. It's, it's a cute. And, of course, you have the big world championships coming up in a couple of years' time. We certainly do. In 2026, be a lot of interest. So for those that intend to come, I would say start making your plans now because you may miss out. Trish Stevens, president of the Golden Shears. You also heard from Doug Lang, John Hodder, Tama Bartlett, Mavis Mullins, Joe Hopkirk and Alan Grant. And the big showdown, the Open Shearing Final, takes place on Saturday evening. Good luck to all the competitors. There's a video of the first morning of the Shears on our webpage. Hi, it's Jess here from Dreamview Creamery. We sell milk in reusable glass bottles. You're listening to Country Life, RNZ National. Te Hoieri Peloris Catchment Restoration Project is a partnership between the community, Tangata Whenua, Marlborough District Council and the government. It seeks to improve freshwater quality and biodiversity and be a leading example of community-driven environmental restoration. Cosmo Kentish Barnes is in the sounds to meet some farmers who have embraced the project. I'm Karen Morrison, um, dairy farmer here in Linkwater, which is in the Marlborough Sounds. And the farm is um, 84 hectares. So we have 220 Frisian uh, with a few crossbreds. And we're surrounded by pine plantations on the hillside, but a native on one hill, a flat land through the middle, and there's water either end of the valley. Do you actively farm 
the property with your parents? Yes, I do. Mum and Dad were um, semi-retired, but our staff member left us, so Mum and Dad have come back full-time until we decide whether we employ somebody else or whether we just plod along and do it ourselves. So what's your daily routine? Up in the morning, milk the cows. Um, at the moment, it's not till five o'clock, but when peak of season or during calving, it can be anything from four to five in the morning. And we milk once a day, so it's not flat out all the time. If there's work to do, that's fine. And if not, it allows me time to get involved with the, like, the, the Tahori project. So I'm a catchment coordinator for the area. Mm. Tell me about that. So the project was set up, I think it's three years ago now, in the area, so it covers all of the Polaris, Rye Valley, Camastown area, with the aim to improve our waterways. So it was to try and, you know, help make all land use more efficient for our water. So how many farms are involved? I only do the link water portion of it, and there's six of us in here that are involved. And we decided that we wanted to do some baseline water monitoring to see what the quality was like, so we had a starting point. There's been um, waterways fenced off, which we've had funding through the project for. There's a lot of native planting gone in, which has also been funded or had help in doing that. Most of us have released dung beetles as well. So that was all at the start, and we've now just continued doing that sort of work. And we're in the process at the moment. We're seven months in of doing a second round of water monitoring to see how that compares to our first lot. So initially you wanted to identify what some of the issues were in your streams and drains. Yeah, exactly. And we didn't just monitor one spot with on the waterway. We had various spots so we could look and see is the issue maybe coming out of the forestry? Is it coming out of native bush? Is it off on farmland? and then try to work together as a group to sort out what the best way forward was. Mm. What are some of the issues that have turned up? Um, That it's not all just off the farmland. There's a lot of nitrates and things that are coming out of the gorse and broom that is within the forest or the pine plantations or even in the native bush. Um, E. coli that is in our waterways, some of it is off farmland, but some of it is also from the native animals that are in the area, the deer and the pigs that play in our waterways. What are you going to do about this? We're working towards solutions. So within the project, they're helping us to work out what are the good ways forward. So by doing plantations of our native trees, it's helping to allow the filtering and excluding stock. We can't do much about the native stock that are around, but we do our best to contain them and There's a couple of areas that um, culverts that we could improve on, so um, that also comes down to fish passage as well, to make sure that the fish species that like to live in our streams can make it from the sea back up to their breeding grounds. So just trying to make that more effective as well. And one of these fish-friendly culverts has been installed on a neighbouring farm. Yes, they put in a culvert uh, just before Christmas, I think it was. Um, Had a demonstration day over there, so... It was not just them putting in a culvert, it was also an educational opportunity to explain to other other people as to why and how to do it. Yeah, and how important it is. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yep. Yesterday you held a soil workshop on the farm here. Tell me about that. Uh, very interesting. Uh, something I don't ever do is go out and just dig a hole in the paddock. <laughs> um, so Matt Oliver from Council was here as one of the science 
people and he dug the whole, instead of just turning over the top spade length, he was nearly a metre down to see the different layers of where your topsoil is, where your root systems go to, what your soil makeup is like. Um, yeah, very, very interesting. What did you find? First paddock we dug a hole in, we found that there was a compacted layer from where we'd maybe been working the paddocks or working the paddock potentially at slightly the wrong time, it was too wet. And yet one of the other holes we found, we found the roots of a clover that went down probably just over the length of your hand. So it was quite interesting to see what was down there and how far things went. And what advice did he have for you and the other farmers there? Maybe you could look at, like we grow four different species within our pasture as it is, but he said that's good to be diverse in what you're feeding and maybe look at some other options of what we were, instead of having the four that we had, have a play and try something different, as a, just as an example. What about the dung beetles? Is that a catchment-wide project? So there's been five farms in the valley here that have put dung beetles in. We all released at the same time, with the first ones being released in December of 21, and then released... January 22, March 22 and about April 22, um, four different varieties and I know there is a few farmers up within the Rye Valley and Canvastown area as well that have released dung mm. beetles. Have you noticed any changes yet? It uh, takes approximately five to nine years to see a vast change but for me there is a little bit of notice with not quite so much uh, dung patches within the paddocks. So they are starting to pull that dung down into the earth? Yes, yes, pull it down into the earth and hopefully over time there won't be the runoff if we have a rain event of, of the dung then going into our waterways. And it also means too that potentially we won't need to use so much synthetic fertilisers. But we already don't use a lot of synthetic fertilisers. Yes. We try and avoid it where we use it if necessary. What other non-chemical options do you have here? We use all our effluent goes into holding pond. Some people only put it over a small portion of their farm whereas we put it over the whole lot. We have an effluent tanker so we can concentrate on where we want to go. If it's wet then we don't put it in certain spots and if it's dry we can afford to put a little bit more on. Yep so you're recycling? Yes recycling. Do you find that this is fascinating. Are you really enjoying this catchment work? Yes, I am. I'm learning lots. Um, some things I didn't know a lot about to do with the water and what was going on in other areas. So it was quite interesting to see that some of the issues that we were having in here was also happening more widespread. So being able to work together on trying to solve things was a lot better. So is this catchment project reducing the stress levels of having to comply with new farming regulations? Some of it has, yes. Um, and with the project's help, it's made it like some farmers might have the time to do their fencing, but they don't have the money for the materials and vice versa. They might have the money for the materials, but not the fencing. So with the project's help, there is options around that so they can get contractors in to help, help do that sort of yes. thing and maintain our plants as well. But funding's due to run out in June 25. How do you convince other farmers to give something a go? Well, we've kind of gone along the lines of those that are willing and able and want to get involved. Hopefully the person sitting watching over the fence seeing what we're doing will then go, well, why can't I be doing this too or how can I be involved? So 
there's no point putting pressure on people because then they just stick their toes in and they don't want to do anything at all. Yep. So your job really is to get them to keep on progressing in this direction? Yep, and do what they can when they can because we do have financial and other responsibilities that come before sometimes having to do this. And with with payouts dropping and things like that, sometimes it is hard that you need to actually balance, hold, I need to survive here. Um, it's my livelihood. Karen cranks up her side by side and takes me up the valley to meet her dad, Nigel. He's waiting for us on a stock bridge that crosses a fenced off stream. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm pretty good, yeah. The sun's shining and it's warm, so it must be good. Lovely day, a bit windy. A bit windy, yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. How long have you been, been here? Father came here in 1950. He got the original part of the farm as a rehab farm, as a return serviceman. And over the years we've brought two neighbours out. And um, I was born here. So the only way I'll leave here probably is in a box. <laughs> Where did you go to school? I went to Lickwater School. There was one teacher. We had one teacher for our whole primary school. We only lived just under a K from the school. We used to have to walk to school or ride a bike if the tyres weren't flat. And then we had to come home at lunchtime for lunch because Mum always had a cooked lunch. Yeah, that was quite interesting. As kids, we did all sorts of things we shouldn't do on the way home and get into trouble. <laughs> As you do? Yeah, yeah, that's dead right, yeah. And then I went through to Marlborough College, Boys College, and did two years there and thought I was fully educated and left. <laughs> Came home on the farm. And you've been farming ever since? Yeah, so I'm 71 now, so I've been here a couple of years, yeah. Do you love it? I do, yeah, yeah. It's a way of life. It has its good and bad points, but... You wouldn't get me living in town. I just, just love this and the community. Mm. Nigel, why have we stopped here? This area here is it's a major stream, the Cullinsville stream that runs through here. And through the Tahori project and Marlborough District Council, we've been encouraged to plant trees. And under government regulations, we've had to fence the waterways. And we're planting it with natives now, so trying to enhance it. The willows have done a good job retaining the banks, but it's to a point where they're coming out and we're replanting it all. Are you enjoying this planting journey? I am. I went through a stage with my father when we first started on the farm. The, the idea was if it was a tree, it had to be cut down. That was there, there, developing land. And I got to a point now thinking, well, we need to go back and get some more natives and stuff going, so... Um, probably for a start, we were, why do we have to do this? But we can see why now. We've had some really good workshops through the water things that Karen's been doing. So it's given us an insight to where we are with our water. We've done a lot of water testing, so we know what, what problems are. So by putting these natives in, we're hopefully going to rectify some of those problems. So that's what we're doing. Are you noticing a change since you've put the natives in? Yeah, um, not so much here in the creek. They're, not, they're only young, but on another part of our property we've planted a, a big native area and the tuis and stuff are starting to come back into it, so it's really neat to go down there and see them. So that was one of the reasons we've... We could have put other 
um, species in, but I've stipulated it all has to be natives. You want those birds sure on the do. farm? Yeah, that's for real. Yeah, and um, we, we had alongside our house, we had a big block of flaxes there for a number of years, and the twoies that came into there was unreal. So that's what I want to see back and provide a corridor for it to happen. Mm. And what about fencing? On this property, we're probably 110% fenced. And that was through choice. We've always been proactive in doing stuff and not been told to do it. If you get to that situation, it can cost you a lot more money. And in hindsight, it's made our management of the farm so much better. And like alongside us here is a bridge that was put in the year the big earthquake was in Christchurch. And that went from a, a $50,000 bridge to nearly 100000 because the specs kept going up. And we weren't happy, but in hindsight, it's the best thing we ever did. So before you had the bridge put in, the stock would just have to walk through the creek, they I guess? They walked through the creek, and as soon as the cow's hooves touched the water there, they mucked in the water. So there's none of that now, and this creek can be volatile in the, in the winter, or even in the spring. And now we don't have to worry about it. The cows are quite safe, and there's no animals in the creek at all. What would your father think about the changes you're making here? Oh, I think he'd be quite proud of what we're doing, but initially, what are you doing, boy, would be, yeah, his, his answer. But <laughs> I think when he can see, or could see where it's coming to, he'd be quite proud of it. And you've also been putting native trees into a plot near the local school. Yes, we have. We've got about a hectare we've planted. We've done that off our own bat. It cost us about $20,000 to establish it. But where it is, is only a few hundred metres from the school. And when we planted it, we involved all the school children, the preschool and the local people. And through that now it is open to the public. So we've had tremendous um, community support for it. Mm. And we had a, a special seat made and put down there so us older ones can go down and sit on it. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> yeah, so like now the trees are established, the children can, can go back there if the teachers wish and identify trees and mm. some of them can look at them and say, well, perhaps I planted that one. And it'll get them into the spirit of looking after trees and that type of thing. So it's quite gratifying. Tanya and Murray Frost's dairy farm is across the road from the Morrisons. We bought the farm in 2012. Uh, it was quite run down, I suppose you could call it. Um, we've refenced most of the farm. We've double cropped every paddock to get rid of brown top. We've put three water schemes in and we've extended the cow shed from a 24 side to a 40 side. Plus, we've done all the effluent and we've been planting out. We were doing this before it was required and um, we've had a new big culvert put in. Mm. How would you describe the valley you farm in? I've always thought of it as a basin. It's like this little, you go through all these windy roads, through all the bush and then you come to a big open basin and it sort of just comes up and down on each side. It's, it's beautiful farming in here. Mm. So it's not real steep. It's flat to sort of rolling up the sides. So we go right to the top of that ridge. 
And what happens over the hills? So over the hill we've got Matapu Bay, so that takes us into the Pelora Sound, and then you can go round the corner about five minutes and you're in the Queen Charlotte Sounds. Mm. And you're involved with the uh, local catchment that Karen coordinates? Yes, correct, with the Tahori project, yep. And it's going brilliantly. We're all working in as a team in the whole district, which is quite nice. And Murray, we're going to head down to a creek to see some work you've done there. Yes, yeah, we're going to have a look at the, the culvert that was put in with the Marlborough District Council and the Tahori project. And then we'll have a look at some fencing, fencing off some waterways and some wetlands. Excellent. Let's head out onto the farm. The creek runs past paddocks of grass and corn as it heads towards the sea. Beneath an overpass that cows use to get to the milking shed is the new and bigger culvert. A healthy volume of water is flowing through it. We've replaced two 800ml culverts. One culvert was completely blocked with gravel. Yes. And they've been replaced with two 1,500ml culverts. And how important is that for the fish? Yes, yes, and now the fish can swim up it. The culverts are 25% of them are buried under the, 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 the bottom of the river. Mm. So, so the fish can swim up through them. What sort of native fish migrate through these culverts? Um, inanga mainly, there's eels. Yeah. White bait, uh, this, one, this one here is, is tidal. The, the, a high tide pushes up through this culvert. And um, you see quite a few white bait come up through here. How satisfying is it knowing that these fish have got a nice clear route now? Yeah, yeah, they've got a good path up here. And, and um, yeah, we've got some more culverts we want to replace with bigger culverts. A lot of our culverts are too small. We'll try and do at least one or two of them across things a year. And does that mean that native fish will be able to get right up to the top of the valley then? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, here's a, here's a couple of the first kowai trees we planted along the edge here. They're doing well, aren't they? Yeah, and this, this was only fenced one side, now it's fenced both sides. So with the Tahori project, with the planting, you got two options. One, they'll pay for the plants and you do all the work. You pay for the plants and they'll do all the work. So we actually opted for them to pay for the plants. And, you did and, all and the we work. do all the work. So we do all the planting, all the cleaning around them. You, you had to take the option that you could afford, really. Yeah. And this way here, yes, it's more work for us, but that's the way we've done it right yes. through. We've just had a look at the culvert that you've put in and now we're heading to a wetland that you've got. Yep, so we're still um, doing more fencing, more waterways. Um, we're doing smaller ones that don't actually need to be fenced, but they'll be fenced. We've put dung beetles in, but we're just waiting to see the results. This is one of the paddocks, this is the paddock we did our first release in. Yes, it is. This one here. So the dung beetles will probably work from one farm to the next. They will actually intermingle. So, especially at this end, because we've got Morrisons and Templemans and Parkses and ourselves, we've all released them, so it's going to be quite a spread of them. Now we are walking through a paddock towards the <laughs> your wetland, and yeah, we're just walking over the irrigation hose. What have you got growing in here? Oh, there's Pittosporums, some echiacs, manukas. manukas, quite a lot of manukas, um, flaxes, cabbage trees. And what was here before? Well, it was just 
rushes and wheat and the cows used to walk through it. It was really part of the paddock. It was, yeah, it was just the bog. They make they make a bog. They come in with their legs all dirty and their udders dirty to milk, yes. which creates mastitis. And um, yeah, it was just good for nothing. So we fenced it off and it's going to make nice shelter when the plants get up. So it's a win-win. It's good for the cows and for milking, and it's good for your environmental footprint. That's right. Yes. So this goes right down to the, the Maker Power Arm. Yeah, you've done quite a bit of fencing and planting all the way down there. It kind of yeah. weaves its way down towards the estuary. Yeah, yeah, yes. And you were saying that you were doing native plantings well before the catchment started the project. Yeah, my father-in-law actually used to collect native plants out of reserves and that, that were just going to be killed off, and he'd come over here in his 80s and plant them out, take the kids with them and clear all around them, and yeah. What a lovely link to the farm. Yeah, yeah. No, so he, yeah, he used to love doing that, didn't he, Murray? Yeah. Linkwater farmer Tanya Frost ending that story. Cosmo was also talking to Murray Frost, Karen Morrison and her dad, Nigel Morrison. To see photos of the Te Hoeri project, including installing a fish-friendly culvert and releasing dung beetles, go to our webpage. Just type Country Life RNZ into your Google browser and you'll find us. You can also subscribe to our podcast there and delve into our archives for loads more stories about rural New Zealand and its people. Well, that's about it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Kakite anō. Go the Black Caps. Bye now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.